Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host for AMDA On The Go, Dr. Diane Sanders-Cepeda. Hello, everyone, and welcome to AMDA On The Go, a podcast. And I am your podcast host, Dr. Diane Sanders-Cepeda. And I am honored to be here with our executive director, Chris Laxton. I don't, Chris, I don't know if you need any introduction, but <laughs> you, you, you sort of exceed all intros at this point, and I'm probably going to get a little fangirl on you, <laughs> if that is okay, because right. I remember, I don't know if, it, I think it was 2014, I don't remember where we were exactly for our annual meeting, but I was lost in, the, in that that area and I'm looking for a session and I must have looked hopeless because you came and you reached out to me and you asked, hey, do you need help? And then you directed me to a session or to wherever I was going. Mm. And I ran into the Florida chapter's executive director, Ian Cordes, and he said, oh, you found your way. And I said, yeah, someone named Chris helped me. He's so <laughs> tall. He was like helping me and I must have looked lost. And he said, Chris Laxton? And I'm, I said, I think that was his last name. And he goes, the executive director of AMDA? And I was like, am I not supposed to speak to him? That's right. You need permission. <laughs> so that's what I remember. That is how I, I always think of you. I'm like, oh, Chris Laxton came to my rescue one day when I was lost in one of those big, crazy hotels and try to figure out my way. That's so... Great. Like I said, I'm very honored that we get this time today, and I wanted to just, like, talk to you about so many things, and I think when we talked earlier, I wanted to talk to you about you, Yeah. and where I wanted to start was really there was a moment yesterday mm -hmm. on the stage when Dr. Suzanne Gillespie introduced the Chris Laxton Excellence in Leadership, in Post-Acute Long-Term Care Leadership, and the reaction on your face was saying so much. Can you tell me about that moment? It was, it was overwhelming, Dan. Uh, it was completely, firstly, completely unexpected and a, and a total surprise. Um, Suzanne had kept this under wraps very successfully and, uh, and nothing had leaked out. I'd heard some rumors, maybe something's gonna go on, well, but we'll, you'll find out. So it's like, okay, I figured I'd get a nice little plaque and so forth, yeah. But to have them establish a fund for leadership excellence in this setting of care, it was just overwhelming. I just felt very humbled and excited and uh, just a whole range of emotions. So, yeah, I can see it all playing out of your face. And <laughs> I was looking back through a ton of websites and bios about you. And I read across something that you said in um, on March 2nd, 2013, uh -huh. that the unique opportunity to join a strong and credible organization at a pivotal 
point in long-term care's evolution. And as I was reflecting on that, I was like, well, Chris has been a part of that evolution. You know, you've been there for every, a lot of the major moments that I remember. Mm -hmm. And your leadership shadow just, you just cast a large leadership shadow. Can you tell me what, what is that? What is your style of leadership? What, how do you, you know, how do you do what you do? <laughs> well, it's a little bit hard to encapsulate in a few words, but you know, the first thing I think about when I think about leadership is self-leadership. In other words, you know, making sure that what you are putting out in the world is authentic um, and embracing uh, and essentially an encouraging force. So I start there. Uh, then I look at who I need to influence above me. And uh, so I, I spend, you know, perhaps if we're looking at this in terms of percentages, 50% of the time is in self-management, self self-leadership, self-awareness, so that what you're bringing to the leadership is in fact who you are. You can't fake it, right? You've gotta, you've gotta be real and it's gotta be 100%. Uh, when it comes to influencing people who are above me. And by that, I, I don't just mean the board of directors. I mean, you know, stakeholders who have influence over our setting and decision making. I think that's kind of where I wanted to put my focus. And then when it comes to sort of leading others, mostly that's about supporting them and getting out of their way, getting the right people around you, making sure that they, they have what they need and then getting out of their way. Yeah, I, when you brought all the prejudice up, I was like, how is that? You, you've had to, so many different personalities, so many different um, um, places and points of views. How have you learned to align your viewpoints and, and encourage and lead all these different voices of, of um, the post-acute long-term care space? Yeah, well, Diane, I think you've probably heard me talk on the board about the first piece of strategic planning, which is mission, vision, and values. To me, that's once you've got your mission, vision, and values set, you don't need anything else. You can make any decision you need to because that's the unifying force. That's what brings all of these dis dis disparate personalities and diverse views together. I mean, if we go down into everybody's particular siloed area of interest, you're never gonna find points of agreement. But if you look at that North Star, which is not just what we're trying to do for post-acute long-term care patients, but what our values are, how we want to work together, ways, what our, our culture is. That's, those are all the, the pieces that bring us together. I, I think I've, I've probably heard you say this a thousand times, <laughs> and it's become part of like my dialogue and as I've, my career journey has gone in all different directions. Um, I think you were the first person I ever heard use the word North Star. And I was like, oh, that's the Chris Laxton word. That's not your word, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but it, it, it is so true. And in thinking about, you know, the, the vision and the mission, that's how you make that strategy. And I love that. I, I do that now at every um, one of my Florida chapter meetings and my, in the AMDA meeting, I really look at my personal mm -hmm. mission and vision plan. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I guess it started with you. <laughs> <laughs> Can you describe the journey that you undertook in those early years of um, joining the, this society for post-acute long-term care? Yeah. Um... Well, I can actually start further back than that and talk about my first job in healthcare, which is which was in chronic care. It was in home care. I worked for the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, and uh, I had never encountered 
you know, so the, the healthcare system before. This was back in the 80s. And uh, I found it to be complicated and weird, and there really wasn't a system, and there wasn't a whole lot of the people talk about a continuum. There was no continuum. <laughs> and, and yet what I found was the people who work in chronic care, the people who take care of older adults, were very special people. And to me, that was striking. It's like, you know, there's something special going on here. So during all of my journey, I've always wanted to reach out to folks who work in long-term care, because I knew that what I would find there was a set of values that resonated with me and that also kind of really was patient focused. I, I did not know that. I guess I didn't go farther, far <laughs> enough back, but I mean, I truly appreciate that home space. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's such a, a part of medicine that is so difficult yeah. because you really have to be creative and on your feet no all the question. time. Yes. yes. So I, I did not know that. That's amazing. Yeah, okay, what else well, did I, I know? You. Yeah, you <laughs> surprised me. I didn't give you a surprise. What else? What else have you learned on this journey? Well, so I bounced around. I did infection. I was running the Infection Control Association for a while. I did diabetes educators. I, I worked for a while for a large certification program, credentialing body for uh, massage therapists, body workers. Um, all really interesting stuff. But, and then I was consulting and, and a headhunter said to me, why don't you like go work for Leading Age in Illinois? They need a new president. Uh, and I, I jumped at it. Firstly, because I was sick of traveling. <laughs> but then secondly, because it allowed me to get back into that community of people that I knew would be good people, people with good values. So I, I spent three and a half years running the Illinois chapter or the Illinois state affiliate of Leading Age. And, and it's like, okay, this is home for me. And then when the AMDA opportunity came up, it said, oh, I have to go. How did you find those, those first years? Um, you know, I was a little nervous uh, about it because uh, I had worked on the sort of industry side of post-acute long-term care, but I remember the folks that I had first met when I was in the home care world. And I said, you know, these are, I'll bet I'll be working with providers here, clinicians who are you know, very similar to that. And they and they were and more. I mean, so my we're, first yeah, we're ferocious. We're 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 like it hits. <laughs> that's it. But but in a, in such a good way. And and so the first thing that struck me when I came and my first annual meeting was at the National Harbor, in uh, in Anacostia, D.C. area, in 2013. <clears throat> Everyone was so embracing, and so welcoming. And you know, the other thing I noticed is so they were so welcoming and embracing of each other. Uh, the collegiality in this community is is very special, and I think people don't, AMDA folks don't even recognize that it. it's so normal to them that that's just what they've come to expect. I can tell you for a fact, this is a very special. This is kind of the goal of AMDA is the the collegiality and the connectivity that this community of practice has. Yeah, I think um, I don't know how we we could bottle it up to sprinkle it out over other organizations, but it is what makes it feel like home. Uh -huh. When we come back right. and we get together, it feels like home. Yep, that's yeah. right. I mean, I'm, I had a, my per perception of a medical meeting is it's pretty chilly, very academic. There's a lot of competition <laughs> about whose paper got published where. I never found any of that here. In fact, people were, co were, were collaborative. They wanted to support each other. There wasn't that sort of, I'm going to climb over your back because it'll give me an opportunity. No, I mean, we're all in this together was the feeling I got. And, you know, the energy that we get 
from working with each other is what sustains us. Do you think that is because of the space that many of us practice in, the post-acute um, long-term care space, going into nursing facilities and you can't do it all by yourself once you're in there. Like if that's if if that was ever true, you know it once you walk into a building. Yeah. Do you think it's that? Well, I think that's a part of it. Um, but I think it's way more than that. I think for one thing, the people who are attracted to post-acute long-term care medicine, they're not out for glory because there isn't any. Um, they're not out for a lot of money because, you know. Is it any? <laughs> there isn't any. Uh, but they're attracted, firstly, with big hearts. Uh, it's, a, it's a place where compassion is needed. Um, it's not just sort of something that you say as a marketing device, it's actually needed. Um, but secondly, it's complex medicine. So you're problem solving in ways that, you know, somebody who's just got, you know, one body part that they chase every day doesn't have to think about. Um, so that sort of breadth and interest that, you know, is intellectually challenging as a, as a physician, I think that's that's so that's a unique combination that brings this this book this community of people together. Yeah, I definitely um, would agree with that. If it makes you feel like you're, I used to call it heroic medicine because you have to think about so yeah. many elements at the same time, yeah. so many aspects. Like, okay, if this person is sick, then this is going to happen. That's going to happen. And what about their nutrition? And what about this? So, I, I could definitely see that. As as you entered into this space, I think that there was a, a lot of um, collaboration that needed to happen with the state chapters. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that part of your journey and how we built up and, and collaborated with the, space, the state chapters from an, uh, this national um, organization? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I've always believed that, you know, the components, the state chapters are a key piece to our strength as an organization. Um, so I wanted to, when I came to AMDA, I wanted to find out more about this, the chapters. And they were kind of disconnected from national. So I, I kind of invited myself to a number of chapters. I remember, <laughs> yeah, I remember a couple of meetings. <laughs> where, yeah, I got it. I was inviting myself there. And some, you know, sometimes there were people kind of like, you know, who are you and why are you here type of thing. But, but uh, you know, again, to me, this was just relationship building and building the strong ties that we need. Uh, and I think after a while, I got invited. I didn't have to invite myself. Um, you know, people were very appreciative. Uh, I'm, I was able to bring, you know, I think some value, not just because I could get up and talk about national organization priorities, but, I, you know, I'm a strategic planner and I've helped a number of chapters get their strategic plans together. I, I do board development and I've done a number of board development pieces for, for state chapters. Yeah, you, you came to Florida, you did a board development um, session for us mm -hmm. and it was really helpful. I think um, learned a lot in that session. Some historical names that I don't remember, but yeah, a lot. <laughs> I always try to throw a little curve in there. <laughs> so as we think about where we're at today, with post-acute long-term care, you know, just to break the news, we're still in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. What was the your first thoughts as February 2020s? You know, we're we started seeing craziness in China and mm -hmm. in in Italy, and I know my first reaction was to buy a lot of toilet paper and um, <laughs> paper towels. My husband thought I was crazy. Everyone thought I was crazy, but I until you had a stop like file. yeah, February 28th. <laughs> What what was it? What was your reaction, and how did you um, mobilize the forces? Yeah, um, you know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember the AIDS crisis. I'm old enough to remember the bioterrorism 
crisis when people were sending anthrax through the mail. That was actually when I was with an infection control organization. We had to pivot quickly to become essentially a bioterrorism preparedness group uh, to, to keep our members ready for this. So to some extent, it's like, you know, we have to understand what's going on with this virus, and then we have to respond quickly. Uh, I'm, I've done that before, and um, I know I know from this community of practitioners that they will that they will tell me what they need, and that we will do what we can to respond to that. So, as you know, we did a lot of things, right? We set up a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of things started happening yeah. at the same time. We got up our our COVID SWAT team and started putting out guidance. Uh, and again, this wasn't academic guidance. This was based on feedback we were getting from our practitioners in the field. Uh, we, we set up our daily uh, COVID pulse newsletter uh, that essentially started compiling all of the, you know, the preprints because they weren't all the way through peer review yet. Yeah. All the preprints that were coming out around COVID just to give people a resource if they needed to, uh, to check on stuff. We had our little um, discussion group going uh, where people could essentially, we were, you know, bringing folks together so they could peer network with each other around. I'm finding this. What are you finding? Um, and and then you know we we set up our web page. It was like a a, a war room, <laughs> the way everything was coming out, mm -hmm. and you were doing it in a virtual space, right? We were. Oh my gosh. We were, and you know, I think the, uh, but but again, it's it it shows it it always shows me that the ability of a community to come together around a crisis like this, that's again what you leverage. It's not like me doing anything. I'm just saying, tell me what you need and then we'll respond. And so we were able to respond quickly. And uh, you know, nonprofits often have the reputation of not being very flexible and fast, but I've never believed that. I think it's just a matter of getting the right people around you and you know, making it happen. I mean, I, I would say that I was um, impressed and just happy to get knowledge because no one was happy, no one had the answers. And um, we were just looking I'm like, how do we keep having these conversations? Yeah. What do we need to do? And so yeah. I was really impressed. I love the the pulse uh, newsletters that were coming out. I was like, okay, what are you telling me today? And and I, I felt like I had it. I, I there wasn't enough to read at that time. So I was really I'm I still today remain grateful mm -hmm. for all of the information that you guys were pushing out and pushing forward. Yeah. It really helped us. Well, it's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. I wonder. In you know, I, I was thinking about the innovations that the things that we've been able to do differently is sometimes crisis bursts um, these innovations mm -hmm. because you have to think differently. Yeah. What have we learned and are doing differently as an organization because of um, COVID? Wow, yeah, I mean, a lot. Firstly, you know, we learned how to do virtual meetings in three weeks. <laughs> yeah. Remember, we were going to go to Chicago. We were going to go to Chicago. And uh, we couldn't. It was shut down. Um, so we had to pivot. And uh, again, some of it's luck, you know, fortuitous decisions the board made previously where you could invest in an LMS that could support a virtual conference. And the rest of it was just, you know, smarts and good people working together to, to pivot. But we, I, you know, I think the, the virtu our first virtual conference in 2020 was pretty good. It was really good, yeah. yeah. And, it was very and, good. Uh, and the second one in 21 was, was even better. <laughs> so, there's, there's, so there's that, you learn quickly. Uh, and, but you know, the other thing, of course, was that we, we went from an office-based organization to a remote one and, uh, and grew the team substantially because of 
things like our CDC grant and other things. And I think that's so as a as a manager and a leader of a staff, I had to learn how to manage and lead in a different way. Uh, Explain that. Say more. Well, you know, it's really interesting for an old guy like me. I'm used to I'm used to sort of, you know, regular sort of personnel processes. Those all went out the window. And what I found instead, and I, I started out talking to you today about sort of the, the self-leadership piece. What I had to go back to is what do I really want to know about my staff and what, I want, what do I want them to know about me? And it, it all had to do with making personal connections. I've always cared about the people I work with, but during COVID, I had to, I had to actually actively care, care about them and talk to them about that. And so we, we had conversations that were much more personal uh, in nature and uh, because that connectivity needed to be strengthened and that's really how we were able to do it. Yeah, I, I definitely understand that. I think um, we were all trying to figure out ways to check in on people yes, yes. and make sure everyone was okay because at one moment in time, no one was okay. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's it, true. Standing and, in grocery lines with masks on at different spaces. I don't know how to explain that to like the future generations. <laughs> I'm like, they're gonna have to see pictures. Well, and you know, from working from home, people, some people just didn't have good setups. They were sitting on their beds, you know, with their laptops or sitting in their basements or in their hallways. And so, you know, and, and a lot of them, a lot of the staff were saying, you know, when this is over, I'm gonna go back to the office. Of course, it isn't over. And what happened instead is after a year, year and a half of doing it this way, people got comfortable with it, figured out what they needed to do, and in fact became more productive. Uh, and I think a lot of why they were more productive is because of that connectivity that we have. I mean, it's, it's the culture of AMDA, but it's also the culture that we have on staff. I, I agree. I mean, I definitely became more productive at home, especially once the kids went back to school. <laughs> because that was not a pleasant thing. Let me ask, you mentioned the CDC grant. I see that as an opportunity. Can you speak more about all the opportunities that we now find ourselves with because we were able to have that organized response? Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is, I guess, another good outcome, if there are any, from COVID which is our visibility became so much higher. And, you know, I was talking to reporters many times a day during the, the crisis. And, and what I was able to, to do for, for, the, for the sort of media world was educate them about our setting. They would ask questions that basically came from a place of complete ignorance about post-acute long-term care. It's just like, why is everybody dying? Okay, let me tell you about post-acute long-term care. And so it was an opportunity, I think, for us to really raise the visibility for the unique qualities that this setting has. And then, you know, we were able, because we were able to get out guidance so quickly, we got the attention of, of government agencies that really hadn't paid much attention to us before. And so Dr. Gillespie went to the White House. I know that it was amazing. <laughs> and we got, you know, because of, of CDs, of the work we did around flu immunization, we, we got this big cooperative agreement on all immunizations. I mean, that's, and, and plus I think we were able now to bring people together. Yeah. I mean, I think that what I have learned about our organization just makes me love it even more mm -hmm. because not only were there calls on Friday afternoon to help um, calm us down, <laughs> yeah. there was just information being delivered. There were all these things. And even with um, the social justice uprisings, yes. the way AMDA responded just was really 
just breathtaking in my uh, in my opinion yeah i mean i, I think around george floyd and Brianna. yes mm -hmm. yeah that was i saw a lot of my colleagues putting out statements and it, it's to me it was just like yeah it's easy but what we decided to do instead was do a deep dive into ourselves again exactly. it's you've got to start with doing yourself. a self-assessment mm -hmm. yeah it, it, that is it's so important yeah it's vital yeah it yeah, is. I, I've been really impressed by the way that we've been able to integrate innovation, self-reflection into everything that we're doing. Mm. I wonder, as we're thinking about, you know, you're, you're leaving. <laughs> I'm going to cry. No, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. But as we're thinking about that, what do you hope for our society going forward? Oh, it's just, it's such an open horizon. I mean, there's so many possibilities. I think we can, we can leverage, you know, the new visibility that we have. Um, certainly the demographic pressure to, to make this setting work uh, is so important. And I think we can take a leadership role now that we perhaps hadn't been able to. One of the things I, I, I'd said when I was talking at the general session was, you know, we've been engaging directly with nursing homes. Prior to this, it was, it was, we were just talking to clinicians, physicians, and now we're talking to nursing homes directly. And I think that visibility that we're able to do will give us influence in really helping to reform this system. And, you know, in terms of the regulatory framework, you know, regulation is regulation. It's not a quality improvement mechanism and it shouldn't be confused with such. But I think we can through our coalition work, the moving forward, coalition, advancing excellence and others, that's where I think we can be a convener and, you know, a mover of new initiatives that really will make a difference. I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again, it would be unconscionable if we just went back to the way things were after this tragedy. It would be unconscionable. We can't let that happen. Yeah, and I, I see what we're doing with the policy. I think you mentioned, can you speak more about that? Yeah, um, in terms of policy, uh, we, of course, we have a bill in Congress uh, to, to, and it's, it's a tiny step, right? It's just asking CMS to keep a list of medical directors, but they, uh, it hasn't happened before. And, but now we're also seeing state-based uh, work where, you know, states are mandating training and credentialing for medical directors. That hasn't happened before. It needs to continue. And then finally, I think our, our biggest customer, so to speak, in terms of that process is the nursing home corporations themselves who don't see the value uh, that a medical director can bring, not simply for clinical care and oversight, but there's a business case here to be made. Medical directors are problem solvers. And I think when it comes to how can you reduce costs, medical directors know how to do that, how to optimize medications. Medical directors know how to do that, how to reduce costs at the end of life, because in fact, the most costly is, is the most, the yeah. yeah, and and it's also where the worst kinds of things happen, where people aren't, you know, their goals of care aren't being met, and it's costing more than it needs to. So that's that I think should be really our focus is to really demonstrate that medical direction and and trained clinicians in this space are in fact a good business choice. Let me ask you this: We're the Society for Post-Acute Long-Term Care. How do we become more inclusive? with all these other entities that exist, you know, we have GAPNA, we have Nadana. What do we need to do to keep those collaborative efforts going? Well, I, I think we're doing it. I mean, we have, 
we do it in two ways. I mean, one is we've got you know a, a joint dues count dues program with Gapna and others, so that we don't want to compete with them for members, but we do want to offer them a, a value of coming to our conferences and uh, enjoying our benefits of membership. So that's the the one thing that we can do easily. But we also build coalitions, and we're very inclusive. I mean, even now, you know, Gapna's president, Denny Kim. Uh, is somebody who hasn't been included naturally in some of the work that we've been doing with other coalitions. I've always reached out to Jenny and said, come on, yes. this is, uh, you haven't been invited to this, but I'm inviting you. So come and be at this table, review these documents, have your voices heard. And, and you know, that's the kind of thing that I think we can do. Yeah. I, don't, I don't see us as sort of being an overlord of anything, right? I mean, <laughs> we're, but we can be a convener. We can bring people together, and that's what we should do. That's what we're good at doing. I think we're great at doing it. As I think about the, the COVID vaccination toolkit and some of mm -hmm. the other things that we've been able to do, it, it as I was reflecting on just having this conversation, I was like, would I say that this is inclusive leadership? And I think yes. I think that's what you've been for us. Um, you know, think about all the changes that has happened um, with the pharmacy, the yeah. pharmacists and the nurse practitioners, yeah. physician assistants, um, the psychologists, the psych D's, you know, yeah. I just, yeah. it's very inclusive. And I yeah. thank you for that. Well, I, we're all, we're, all of us are small organizations. And so if we can't link arms and work together, then I think there's very little we can accomplish. But if we can work together, there's an awful lot we can accomplish. There's probably nothing we can't accomplish. <laughs> Let me ask you this, next chapter, <laughs> I don't like to say retirement, it feels too permanent. Final. Yeah, yeah. so next chapter, <clears throat> grandpa chapter. You know, right. I've, I've had the benefit of knowing two grandpas uh -huh. and three great grandfathers. Wow. So, you know, I know just that how wonderful it is for a human to evolve into that grandpa role. Can you talk about a, a, your your adventures at grandpaing? <laughs> what, what are you going to do? What's the first thing you're going to do day one of retirement? Um, well, I just had a, a grandson appear um, just a week ago. So, uh, you know, I, I need to get to know him. Uh, my other two granddaughters, I've gotten to know quite a bit, but mostly over Zoom. I mean, they've come and spent time with me, uh, and I've gone out to, to see both of them. You know, it's a, it's a just, they're both open books. They're, all, they're just open books, and, and, uh, and they're sponges. And I, I'm, I'm acutely aware that we adults, everything we do is being watched. Everything we do is being everything, observed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> everything, the good and the bad. So I think it's really important. Again, it's about authenticity, right? You have to be exactly who you are and not, not be a fake this or a fake that, because you know kids can see right through that. And grandkids remind me of that. I remember when I was a young parent, I, I wasn't aware of that, but then it was pretty clear that you know, uh, you know the eyes are on you and, uh, and everything that you're doing is getting picked up. Well, I will attest that we do remember everything. <laughs> it is a good thing. It's good. I remember, you know, the rise on the shoulder mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. you know, the the strange conversations about when a movie costs 10 cents, you know, <laughs> so everything they're going to they're going to just enjoy it. And so the bad jokes, all the bad dad jokes. Well, yes, <laughs> when my dad wasn't around. 
particularly my grandfather, my grandpa Bo, uh -huh. gave a lot of the jokes and told us all the secrets. <laughs> okay, we'll see. So that's what you have to do I'm for gonna, your grandkids. I'm going to do it. Yeah, I already have. I've, I've been, you know, they they know me now as the guy who comes up with the really stupid jokes. <laughs> wait, wait, okay, wait a minute. Now we got to hear a stupid joke. <laughs> I don't know that I've got any off the top of my head. But, you know, bad jokes. They're just bad jokes. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give you that one. Okay. Every joke is a bad joke, <laughs> but not when you're a grandkid. When you're a grandkid, you know what it is? It's like a treasured moment. Well, that's true. Yeah. Making people giggle is a lot of fun, especially little kids. You know, I, put, I do funny voices, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to do a funny voice unless you really want to because I, I don't want to do a funny voice. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't even know how to end this, Chris. I don't want to. <laughs> but I thank you. It it really has been an honor. You know, just being in your presence, the you know, I I just I I think of the empathy and the humility that you show every day and it's just a true honor to have known you in this position. And I just hope that, you know, I'm not gonna do what Wasserman's gonna do where he's gonna hunt you down, but just <laughs> check in with us and let us know how everything is going. I'm very happy to do that. And it has been an honor for me as well. This has been, I said it yesterday, the pinnacle of my professional life, but frankly, also of my personal life. This is, I've been through a lot of different kinds of organizations, by far the best group of people I've ever worked with. Thank you. Thank you. thank you. All right. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Honor Chris Laxton's 10 years of stellar leadership with a donation to the Foundation's Chris Laxton Excellence in PALTC Leadership Fund. Learn more at PALTCFoundation.org. If you are a physician, and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Mm -hmm.